Uh, the, the credit and praise and the glory do your name uh, as we stand here together singing that chorus. I pray that it be the, the reflection of our hearts and our lives, that from you and through you and to you are all things. So do you be the glory forever. As we stand together um, in your presence, we need to be reminded that there's no source of confidence that we, that we have other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. We boast in nothing but the cross of Christ to which we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. Help us die again to the things of the world today. Help us come alive again to the things of heaven today. That we would be inch by inch, moment by moment of our lives, more reflection of your character and your nature and the reality of heaven would be seen in us as your people in this world that desperately needs to know that Jesus is alive and he makes a difference. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of our submission. And Father, we ask that you do your work through the preaching of the work of your son and through your spirit that you would Open our eyes to wonderful things from your word. You are great and greatly to be praised. And we give this time as an act of worship to you and pray that you be pleased in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, you can open your Bibles at least at one point during this message. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit more than normal this morning, um, I have to confess, you know, through this series, anytime we do a topical series, which isn't our normal pattern, there's a degree of insecurity that I find in preaching topical sermons because it's a lot more unanchored than we normally are as we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so this morning and last night, even as I went to sleep, I found myself asking the question, like, why a, like, why a sermon on conflict resolution? Like, why the... Why the time spent and the effort put into trying to put together a sermon related to conflict resolution? And uh, there's a couple answers that at least helped me as I try to answer that question. One is because conflict is so common. Like conflict is a very common thing. My um, guess is the majority, I don't know what percentage, the majority of us in this room at some level in our lives are dealing with interpersonal conflict. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because it's very possible it could be the person sitting right next to you. But the, I think the, the challenge is we, we know the reality of conflict, like its present state in us and our relationships, whether we look backward to a place where we're still having to resolve conflict interpersonally or the current moment where we're journeying through the same. Conflict is common. That's one reason to preach a sermon on conflict resolution. The other the other reason would be this, is that biblical conflict resolution is uncommon. So, so conflict is common, but resolving that conflict in a way that's healthy and biblical, in my experience personally and pastorally, is unfortunately very uncommon. And for both of those reasons, by God's grace, I pray and I hope that we'll stand to benefit from hearing in some broad way some principles on Conflict resolution. And that's the point, though, isn't it? Like, we're kingdom people are uncommon people. So, to the degree that 
biblical conflict resolution is uncommon. We want to be uncommon people. Like that's a, in some ways at the heart of what it means to be a kingdom person, that you're not playing by the rules of the earth, right? You navigate through life and relationships. We do as Christians based on a different, a higher, a heavenly set of rules and principles. And so we want to be in that sense, uncommon people, the way we deal with conflict upside down from the ways of the world. And that's really the, the heart of this series in kingdom relationships. And kingdom people do hard things because the power of heaven is working within us to fuel forgiveness that we talked about last week. Having been forgiven, we're called to forgive. We move toward difficult situations and relationships with love and reconciling power. And I guess just one thing to challenge us a little bit is like if we don't, if we don't move to a place where we resolve conflict in a way that's different than the world, then how is the power of God going to be seen in our lives? How will the world know that we're kingdom people? Like if we resolve conflict in the same way that, or we leave it unresolved in the same way that they, they do. Where is the power of God in that? I don't say that in a heavy-handed, preaching-from-the-mountaintop sort of way. I think we all need to kind of enter into the, the gravity of it's important that the world see a difference in the people of God. And this is one of the many areas and ways in which that can and should manifest itself because we resolve conflict differently than the world around us. And one of the things that's come to mind for me this week is that an unresolved conflict and poorly handled conflict, it often what it does, it leaves us as people in conflict. So whether you find yourself in a place of unresolved conflict with someone or poorly handled conflict, my submission to you is you're a person in conflict. And as a result, you need to move to a place of looking more uncommon to the world. And I pray that you'd be helped by this morning. So I've got, as any good preacher does, I've got four P words to give you this morning on conflict resolution. The first is pattern. Pattern. The gospel resolves our conflict with God and empowers us to resolve conflict with others. In some ways, this could be the banner statement for the whole message, but the pattern that we, we looked at as we think about conflict resolution is the gospel itself. So in the, the good news of the Christian message, the good news of the Christian faith, our conflict with God has been resolved and also empowers us to resolve conflict with others. So when we think about our conflict with God, if this is kind of unfamiliar term or even um, concept for you, I want to journey through a little bit of unpacking this. Romans 5.12, one of many places we could look at, as it gives the picture of how deep and how wide and how vast the effect of sin is in the world. In Romans 5.12, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, the very beginning of creation, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So because of original sin, death spread to all men and women in the world. Much worse than an infectious disease, we might hope to be able to prevent. Sin is actually genetic. It's hereditary, as it were. We inherit a sin nature from that original sin. We're bent to self-rule and rebellion. We want autonomy from God and not dependence upon him. And so we endeavor in our lives in different ways to try to find that sense of autonomy in ourselves or satisfaction in ourselves or in the world. 
And our rebellion against God's rule in our life has never provided the type of joyful autonomy we hope for. In fact, what we receive instead is a hostile alienation from God instead. Conflict with God. Genesis 3.15, the, the curse of the fall, the original sin. God speaking to the, the serpent, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity or strife or conflict, disharmony has defined human beings from the beginning, from that original sin. In fact, the whole cosmos aches with the effect of sin and the brokenness that it pervades across the world. And one of the words that we could use to summarize the main storyline of the Bible is reconciliation. Reconciliation. And through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, hostile alienation is met with gracious provision. That's good news. Anybody say amen to that this morning? And the cross of Jesus Christ, through his finished work, Hostile alienation is met with gracious provision. Men, women, and children who are estranged from God can be brought back to God, restored to right relationship with him. Instead of his enemies, we become his children. Instead of far off, we're brought near. Instead of darkness, we're now considered light in the Lord. And there's this deep, vast, awesome reconciliation that we have offered to us through Christ. Romans 5.10 says it this way. It says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So don't miss this part. Like our conflict with God that we see just in brief order here, there's so much more that could be said. Left to ourselves, we are at enmity with God. There's a strife and a fracture in our relationship with God. And through God's gracious, sacrificial initiative, he's brought us back to right relationship with him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He moved toward us. He sacrificed to save us. He covered us with grace and truth. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, a powerful demonstration of this, written to a church dealing with this breach between Gentiles, non-Jews, and Jews, and now they're made up in one family, and there's still strife between the two. And Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's all believers. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, the enmity, the strife, and disharmony was killed by the cross. And notably in Ephesians 2, in this section, that vertical reconciliation with God leads to horizontal reconciliation and harmony with others, namely within the local church. But I would submit in general ways commends us to move toward reconciliation and harmony even outside the church. But Ephesians 2 is dealing with Jews and Gentiles made up into one family. God has broken down this dividing wall culturally to make us into one family. 
The hostility that existed between us and God and us and one another is broken down. It's killed by the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel resolves our conflict with God and it empowers us to resolve conflict with one another. Recently, I've been doing some work around the house, uh, some projects, which usually means that there's a mess for longer than I anticipated in our house. And one of the things I've realized recently just going into the store, I don't know if, how many of you have ever searched for, shopped for sandpaper? There's, there's a lot of sandpaper out there. There's a lot of different types. There's a lot of different versions and shapes. There's a lot of different sanders. I mean, there's orbital and disc sanders and belt sanders. You're like, which one do I need? And, but you know what? One thing in common with every single piece of sandpaper, grit. Grit. It's just a matter of what kind of grit. And in this space, when we talk about conflict resolution, one thing we have to remember and be confronted with is that like, this call to resolve conflict in relationships takes grit. It takes hard work. And you could say any, any measure of hard work that we have involves hard work. Like this is difficult. There are times it's really, really difficult. You're going back to last week when we talked about forgiveness, when there's, there's deep, long-standing pain in relationships. There's a process of forgiveness that firstly is between us and God, but that process of reconciliation can also be really, really difficult because then it doesn't just depend on one person and the relationship with God to forgive, but dynamics outside of us that we have to depend on in some measure to achieve reconciliation. I'm not going to be able to deal with every scenario, but I'm going to try to speak to some of those this morning. But conflict resolution takes grit. It takes hard work. Conflict is still very much alive in our relationships, even as Christians, because our residual struggle with sin and self and the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, you have these two kind of comparative lists, the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit. And right in the middle of the description of the works of the flesh, it says this, verse 19, Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Among them are enmity, lack of harmony, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. So if you spend any time in your New Testament, particularly in the epistles, like kind of after the Gospels, You'd be hard-pressed to find any book that doesn't have a direct command toward unity and harmony. If if you don't find a direct command, you'll find plenty of allusions to or assumptions about the unity of the believer. But why? Like, why is that important? Because these letters are written to bunches of Christians. And there's a call to, like, strive for harmony. Like, seek peace. And pursue it. Like be of one mind and one accord. Like that wouldn't be a necessary command if it didn't take hard work to achieve it and maintain it. Like it takes hard work for us. I think it's good for us to just embrace the fact that it'll take some hard, sustained, persevering work. But God's sacrificial, gracious initiative toward us becomes the pattern for how we deal with conflict with others. And putting into practice healthy Biblical conflict resolution, it takes grit, but it also takes grace. This is second P I want to give you, a priority. 
Actually, we'll get to the grace in just a minute. But priority is the second one. Demonstrate a biblical urgency about resolving conflict with others. So if you look in Matthew chapter 5, where I told you to go initially. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, there's just a couple of verses here I want to zoom in on. In a section that in many of our Bibles is entitled Anger. There's a heading about anger. I'll come back to that in a second. Let's read verses 21 through 24. It says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong language. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This is really substantial. So in the midst of service and worship, Jesus says, if you realize when you're doing those things, if you're bringing your gift to the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you, reconciliation is such a priority. I want you to stop serving. I want you to stop worshiping. And I want you to go be reconciled to your brother. Don't miss the significance of that. Because I wonder just how often we end up just kind of pretending that there's stuff right below the surface. We just kind of pretend sometimes for years, sometimes for decades, that there's not something that needs to be dealt with right here below the surface. And Jesus says, if you realize your brother has something against you, go. It's a priority to me, speaking from God's standpoint, for you as my people to be reconciled to one another and not to just allow unresolved conflict to abide in your life. Go, go quickly. And for you flight folks and the fight or flight mix, you know, we all probably fall in some measure in one of those camps or somewhere in between, but to the extent we have a fight or flight mechanism that we all kind of drift toward for you flight people whose tendency is to avoid conflict, which can often mean avoiding conflict resolution, it's important to add, God wants you to hear that pace matters when it comes to conflict resolution, that your pace and moving toward conflict matters to him. And as As his child, it should matter to you because he says, hey, if you're even engaged in worship, stop and go be reconciled. Pursue reconciliation and then come back and engage in those things later. Don't miss the significance of that. This is a priority to God. And so as God's people, it should be a priority to us, right? God wants you to hear that pace matters with conflict resolution. It's a priority to God. And one of the things I find helpful about this section is how Jesus speaks to anger before he addresses the priority of reconciliation. You probably caught that. So you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, there's judgment that awaits. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, or you no good person will be liable to the hell of fire. What's the significance? Well, it seems to me that Jesus couples these two things because anger and insults 
either inwardly or externally, is really an alternative to reconciliation. It's one of the things that will occur if we don't go to our brother and be reconciled. Based on the context of reading this section, it seems to me that Jesus is saying, like, if you don't, if you don't resolve this conflict, one of the things that will happen is you're going to begin to speak against the person. At the very least, you're going to have present within you an internal anger. Much worse, it's going to spew out externally and become divisive and damaging and gossip toward others about the individual where there's unresolved conflict. It seems that anger, insults, and name-calling are at least one of the sinful alternatives to reconciliation. And this can be a helpful and convicting diagnostic for all of us. And so I just ask you the question, are you angry with someone? Do you find yourself this morning bitter at someone? When you see them, when you think about them, when you interact with them, are those the dominant emotions that you feel? Jesus says, go. You're a kingdom person. Go. You have everything you need to be able to deal with that conflict. And it's a priority to me, so go. Be reconciled to your brother and then take care of bringing your offering, as it were, to me. Are you speaking out against someone to others, insulting them, gossiping? Those are real clear, sinful issues. If I could just submit this, sometimes we can mask gossip even in prayer requests. And I think we've got to be real careful. Saying, hey, would you, would you pray for so-and-so in my life? Like, he's just having a hard time with X. Ah, there's a fine line between really asking for a prayer request and gossiping about someone under the banner of praying for them. We have to be very careful that our anger with someone doesn't bubble up in just a little more socially acceptable forms of insults and gossip. Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone. There's that grit again. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Leon Morris said this about this passage. I got this quote up here. He says, A bitter root is a root that bears bitter fruit. So it is possible for the seed of bitterness to be sown in a community, and though nothing is immediately apparent, in due time the inevitable fruit appears. The family, this is true in our church body, and it's true in your own heart. And you, may, you may be able to, to mask over and callous over bitterness and resentment for a season. But you should know it will ultimately bear bitter fruit in your life. Because God is not mocked. He's not going to allow the, us to sow to the works of the flesh and somehow go on thinking we can walk in the power of the Spirit. Because the two are incompatible. And so if you feel like this, if you feel this at a convictional level this morning, my encouragement to you is go. And if you need help knowing how to go into whatever situation it is, because some of these waters are very deep and painful, if you need help, get the help. Come to us as pastors. Go to someone you know in your life who loves Jesus and has the Spirit of God and will take you in the Word of God and walk with you in it, but don't leave it unresolved. 
Much like holding on to unforgiveness, holding on to unresolved conflict is ultimately going to be firstly to the detriment of your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. And also diminishes our witness to a world that needs to see that we are uncommon people, right? Empowered by a wonderful, powerful Savior who has given us his grace. We saw last week in Mark 11 the priority of forgiving when we realize that we have anything against anyone. Mark eleven twenty five. whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Maybe this bitterness and this anger comes from a failure to forgive. These two things are very closely linked, and I think we have to do the hard work of evaluating our own heart. Like, am I bitter because I haven't, I've chosen not to forgive? Like, I don't see this person as particularly lovable. Undeserving, I would say. They're undeserving of my love as a, as a believer, as a brother or sister. That may be true from a human standpoint. But didn't God love you when you were undeserving? Didn't he love us when we were rebels to his name? At the very least, it shatters the pretense of somehow I can hold over someone something that I've received freely from God. Are we willing to forgive the undeserving? Maybe that's something of what it means to fall short of the grace of God. Because by God's grace, he's loved you as undeserving as you are. Anything short of extending that to others is falling short of the grace of God. All right, now let me address the fight folks in the room. Some of y'all love running to conflict. And you also need to be reminded there's a different kind of pace that you have to operate within but maybe the word you need more is grace than pace. Grace matters with conflict resolution. So a pattern, priority, and the third P is posture. Demonstrate grace and humility when resolving conflict with others. Family, I have to confess this a little bit. There's going to be some space. I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to, be able to say everything about this, but I'm trying to fold in just some pastoral encouragement to you. Not every one of these statements will be attached to a scripture. As best as I can tell, spending time with the Lord and his word this week, these are an expression of walking in love, walking in humility, and being urgent about the call to conflict resolution. There's a lot that isn't said about how to do this, and I want to give you some thoughts as you follow God's call to go to people in your life. There's a category of unresolved conflict that might fall in the space of general unrest and lack of harmony. There's times where we just, maybe particularly in relationships that we've had that have been a certain way over a period of time, and all of a sudden there's a change in relational dynamic. There seems to be some unrest and disharmony. This is maybe lower on the Richter scale of conflict resolution. My encouragement would be to still go in those cases. Like where you sense like a disharmony and a, and a distance put between you and another brother or sister. It's maybe not as overt as anger or gossip, but there seems to be a difference that's occurred in your relational dynamic. As a brother or sister in the Lord, go. And it could look something like this, just very humbly and subjectively to, to say something like this. You know, I, I sense that there's, there's maybe something between us. Have I done something to offend you or sin against you? That's a posture of humility that doesn't assume the worst about the other, assumes, and maybe just 
considers that we might not see ourselves completely accurately and invites the evaluation of the other. Is there something I've done to contribute to what I feel is a distance in our relationship? That can be a remarkably healthy thing to say when you feel distance. That's just kind of a subjective feeling, quite honestly. But just because it's subjective doesn't mean that it's wrong. In this space where you're dealing with disharmony and disunity, a lot of times it can be subtle. And if you don't speak to the things that in God's spirit he, he draws our attention to, a lot of times they can turn into worse issues. Or maybe the question of what if I contribute to the unrest and conflict. When there's a general unrest and lack of harmony, there are times when the feeling of desire to, or the desire to reconcile won't be reciprocated from people. Like what, like what do I do if I go and the desire to be reconciled isn't, it's not reciprocated from the person I'm going to. We'll circle back to that at the end, but in, in plain language, you do what you're called to do. You do what you're in control of, and you go and you make right the things that you need to before God, but you can't control the other person's response. You're still called to forgive. You're still called to go, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be reconciliation because that takes two people. But go, evaluating your own heart. Consider the fact that you may have done things that you don't even know about, contributed in ways that you don't quite see, and go with a posture of humility. So you got this general unrest and lack of harmony. The second would be when you know or believe you have sinned against someone. And let me just kind of play this out. This is arguably one of the most important ways in which I could shepherd our church family. As a family, you know, one of the things that we we talk about and belong is that like in a healthy church, when you look at Matthew 18, that called a one-on-one -on -one relationship where you go to each other when there's sin. You see it in Galatians 6.1. We'll get there in a second. That in a, in a healthy church, there's a whole lot of step ones that happen. In a healthy family, there's a whole lot of one-to-one -one interactions about, hey, brother, this, this happened. You, did, you said this and it offended me and so I just wanted to bring it to your attention. Or, hey, James, would you forgive me for the way that I spoke to you, the way I diminished you when I responded to your question? And there's a whole lot of those interactions that happen in a healthy family. Should be in our families, like our nuclear families and in our church family. But in moments where you know or believe you have sinned against someone, let me just propose a couple things from a scriptural lens that we need to do. We need to seek forgiveness for the specific offense, which creates a response from the other party. Now, some of us have been raised with just the term sorry being synonymous with forgiveness. I just want to rattle you a little bit, just challenge you that if you say you're sorry, it doesn't necessarily equate to biblical forgiveness. Because sorry can just be more of a feeling than it is a, a call of response in relationship with someone else. Unless sorry is accompanied with, I'm sorry for this, would you please forgive me for... It really is insufficient in many ways to, to move toward reconciliation. My encouragement would, would, would be to say, will you forgive me? For, I can't tell you how many times over the course of our family's existence, what percentage of my life has been given relationally in my family to this type of dynamic of going to my kids, going to Haley. I don't say that in a self-righteous way. It's just a reflection of the fact that conflict is real. And we have to deal with it. We have to find patterns that are healthy and biblical to, to speak to those issues. And so you go to someone, you say, will you forgive me for blank? And you wait for a response. And that person either does or doesn't forgive you. By God's grace, they do. And then there's reconciliation 
at least in part, that can happen in that moment. But you don't say, hey, will you forgive me for being angry because you were a jerk? That's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not, that's not an apology. That's you just masking. This is a passive-aggressive nonsense, right? But can I just say practically here, when we're, when we're talking about, a lot of us haven't been in a space where we're comfortable admitting wrong. We've just never seen it modeled. Some of us have never done it. It's quite possible. You could be in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and have never looked across the table at someone and said, will you please forgive me for something? And my encouragement to us is don't let pride and fear get in the way of biblical priorities. Because our pride can keep us from being vulnerable and broken. It's one of the chief things that would keep us from going, to, like keep me from going to my kids and, and my wife and those that I'm closest with that I do so much life with because that's the space where it's likely going to happen. And so my pride, because I want to preserve myself and my reputation, I want to look put together. And so that means that I don't give full voice to my own frailty. That I don't talk about the ways that I'm weak because we don't like to do that. That's just pride, and it's poisonous. In your life, it's poisonous in the life of your family. It's poisonous in the life of the church family. But don't let pride and fear keep us from being willing to do this. So fear of exposure and self-preservation, all those things do is just add sand to your castle of sand that isn't built on any biblical foundation But living in light of God's grace leads to a sense of security and safety, even as we confess and are open about our shortcomings and sin. These are some words that came to mind for me this week that I I think the reason I feel so strongly about these is because I feel like deep in my soul the, the reality of God's promise that he gives grace to the humble and he's opposed to the proud. Like from early on in my walk with Jesus, that was stamped in my heart so deeply that this is real. Like God is going to oppose me when I choose pride. And he's going to be giving me grace if I choose by his grace to walk in humility. Like I believe that with all my heart. I've seen it. I've seen the benefit professionally and pastorally and in my marriage and in my parenting and relationships. I don't do it perfectly, but man, do I believe it. And so because I believe that, here's some things that I would say reflect that premise and that promise. Vulnerability cultivates approachability. Vulnerability cultivates approachability. Why is this significant? I'd say particularly for you parents and those of you who are leading other people. Like you can cultivate an environment of approachability by your own vulnerability. Because it's a mark of humility. It's an openness to say, I don't have it all together. I screw up. I don't follow God the way that I should. I still am in need of his grace. But you know what that does? It's like a self-perpetuating dynamic in the relationships that are closest to you. You get to model the grace of God needed for your own soul and how it's okay, as it were, to, to come to one another and be broken. The humility of modeling being known. Vulnerability cultivates approachability. I would say the opposite is true. Inaccessibility cultivates insecurity in relationships. There's a fear of rejection. Because if mom or dad or pastor or 
leader in my life or my good friend never admits wrong, never shows me the cracks in his life, how do I know it's safe for me to do it? You can know theologically that it's safe, but practically and relationally, I pray that our relationships bear the, the fingerprints of God in our humility, our vulnerability that leads to approachability. Maybe one question that comes up, what do I do if someone comes to me about something that I don't agree with or don't see the same way? Because this happens, right? You might have somebody come to you and like the application of this message is not that everybody just start going to everybody for everything. Like, hey, I saw this. Pastor Matt was telling us we're not going to, it's not the call to be the sin police like in the room where you're sniffing out like, hey, I need something to address. But if somebody comes to you, and let's say they share something with you that their evaluation, you're like, ah, I'm not 100% sure that I agree completely with what's being said. Like, what's the right response? I'd say generally speaking, and there might be some exceptions to this based on the type of accusation or admonition that comes. A right response would be like, hey, I appreciate you coming to me. Let me just, let me just kind of perfectly consider what you've shared. Leave the conversation and pray, like genuinely pray. God can reveal things to us even through broken means at times to refine us and make us more like Jesus. But the humble posture would be like, hey, I appreciate you coming, and let me just prayerfully consider what you've shared. Something to consider. Considerations for when someone has sinned against you. So like general unrest, you sinned against somebody else, now someone has sinned against you. The first thing I would say would be this, like look at yourself. Before you go, look at yourself. Luke 17, 3 through 4, says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. But the first thing is notable. Pay attention to yourself. Pay attention. Like, look at yourself first before you go. Galatians 6, 1 echoes the same Thing. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual in that moment should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Here it is. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here's the way I'd sum this up. Like a humble heart has a healthy distrust of itself. Like a humble heart before God has a, has a healthy distrust of its own evaluation of its motives, its intent. And so it's wise and appropriate and biblical to pause and to look at yourself before you ever go to someone else to address sin against you. Am I willing to be a skeptic of my own perspective? It's important to heed the call to humble self-examination that's closely associated with our call to go to someone in sin. So later on, after Galatians 6.1, which says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. When you go to address something, don't think of yourself as something. Just remember that all of us are nothings made something by somebody else, right? By the grace, it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. So to whatever degree you think you stand in the moment, just remember it's the grace of God that makes you stand in any measure beyond just a rebel to his name. Examine, so look at yourself. Examine your motives. Is the offense something that needs to be addressed or confronted? There's a lot of times we 
something hits us sideways, we don't necessarily need to address it because we can allow God's Spirit to be the source of conviction in people's lives. Is it a pattern? Is it something that's constant in this person's life that I need to bring admonition about? Am I being overly critical? So examine your motives. Maybe most importantly is forgive before you go. Forgive the person before you go. That way the emotions that can be present when you go to resolve conflict aren't the, the leading factor in the conversation. Forgive them before you go. Remember the 14 billion you've been forgiven before you go try to choke them out for the $268. If that illustration's lost on you, just listen to last week. Ephesians 4 Some of you are maybe more gifted in some ways of speaking the truth. But Ephesians 4 doesn't tell us just to speak the truth, right? You've heard this passage. You speak the truth in love. Whatever truth comes from you to someone else has to be motivated by love. Love that rejoices in righteousness, rejoices in the truth, and wants to see the upbuilding and encouragement of the individual The last thing I'll share, the last P, and this is where I'll close, would be persistence. I had a couple P words that fell here, but I'll kind of wrap them all into one. Pray with faith for God to move and work in uncommon ways for his glory and our good. I don't want to give you just some like trite formula for conflict resolution because there's some of you that are walking through really difficult relationships and some that don't seem to have any hope of being reconciled. And I, and I get that. I understand that. I recognize it. And the call for you is to do everything in your power to move toward reconciliation, even though the other, other person may be unwilling to do the same. And that takes great faith. And my encouragement is don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. Like any time that God is involved, there's always hope. There's always a possibility for change when God is in the room, when he's in view. So be hopeful because God is able and determined to pray the way Jesus taught us to. Like, God, hallow your name. Like, let your name be seen as sacred and special and supreme in this situation, in this relationship. Would you please let your will be done on earth as is in heaven? your will that has no resistance in heaven, would you flood earth and this relationship with your good and perfect and pleasing will? Would you rule in a situation, your kingdom come, would the the power of heaven invade the places on earth right now in my life that need your power to work to reconcile brokenness? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Church family, my heart in this message, in this series, would be that the world would see the power of God with, at work within us. Because God is worth it. Like he has given us everything that we need. And there are corners of our lives where we can lose a sense of hope and urgency about things looking like the kingdom looks. And my encouragement to you is to, to put in the work in your heart, and the work it takes to move toward people that in heaven and on earth that we be like the peacemakers that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 
that when people see us and the way that we resolve conflict, that we be called the sons of God because they see his fingerprints on our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Just take a minute. Take a minute and just consider maybe the ways you've been challenged, convicted, maybe relationships that you've thought of and don't want to rush to close off here without allowing God's Spirit maybe to to move in our hearts and provide conviction and clarity where it's needed. God, the Spirit, would you help us to apply your word even now, help us to respond in obedience and humility and faith. We need your help. Father, if it weren't for your initiative sending your son Jesus, if it wasn't for your sacrifice and going to the cross we could never be considered a part of your family the enmity that was there from the beginning would be there until the end. But we praise you this morning. If we have rested in the finished work of Jesus, that our conflict with you, God, has been resolved. That we're no longer objects of your wrath. That we are objects of your mercy and your affection. Praise be to your name, God. Thank you for the miracle of salvation. Thank you for your power, God, that you were able to save. If there's anybody in this room that has never understood your saving power, would they find hope in Jesus' name this morning? If there's anyone in this room that reconciliation seems like a foreign concept and they know the distance that they experience right now from the God who has made them, would you, would you draw them near by your grace? Would they believe upon Christ this morning? And God, I pray that deeply that you would affect us as your people. As a church family, I pray that our relationships would be patterned after the gospel, that, that through the gospel our conflict with you has been resolved, and as a result there is a pattern and there's also power to resolve conflict with each other. And I pray that we do it with, with grace and with a sense of urgency and priority. I pray that we do it with always having in view the forgiveness that we have been granted through Christ. And I pray that we never think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That we be objects of your grace and not objects of your opposition.
Help us to be kingdom people who reflect the values and priorities and the power of heaven here on earth as long as you give us time here. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We want to see you have it. We want to see you have all those things here as much as we can contribute to your fame spreading in this world. God, would you help us to do that? And I believe that part of that is us pursuing biblical conflict resolution and relationships. Help us with that, I pray. Motivate us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go and stand together. We'll sing one last song.